Because of the people made into one Adversity survives no more All hope is restored Come into my home when winds are too strong Bask in the warmth of Ikayalet I reveal of the true nature of an African spirit I am because we are Oh, can you feel it? Can sour into sweet delegate blues Ah, yeah, yeah, Good. I would love that. <laughs> yes. So, 
So tell us about Global African Liberation Day, how you all have pulled this together, and yeah, and where we're going to be. <laughs> so, I mean, essentially, you know, when we say African Liberation Day, for us, um, it's just simply a tool to, it's to create an institution for African people that focus around the focuses around our need and desire to be free, to come together, to unify, and to fight for our liberation and be free. So African Liberation Day, it's just a tool to accomplish those means. And so it really is just a reflection of the work that we do in the All-African People's Revolutionary Party 24-7, 365 days a year. So the event on Monday is going to have uh, a, an overwhelmingly dynamic uh a number of guests and the quality of guests, Theodora Gomes, who is um, um, in the General Union of Guinea-Bissau Women in Guinea-Bissau, West Africa. She fought in the independence war that uh, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau fought against the Portuguese to run the Portuguese colonizers out. She fought alongside Amil Cabral there, so she's going to be one of the panelists Monday, um, along with um, um, Fernando um, Flart, who is uh, a part of the International Cuban Committee of Friendship, and he was also one of the Cuban Five. If people don't know about the Cuban Five, oh, they were uh, yes. five Cubans who were who went into Miami. You know, Cu- uh, the, these people in Florida have a history of engaging in terrorist acts against Cuba. So um, Cuba, wanting to respond to that, they, they sent five people into Miami to try to find out you know, what they could about these terrorist attacks. And they were found out, and he was imprisoned in this country for 16 years, and um, he was released, uh, one of the last things the Obama administration did in exchange for um, Cuba doing something for them. They released the Cuban Five. Um, And then we have Brother Mafa from the uh, Zimbabwe Movement for Pan-African Socialists, um, as well as Brother Jesus Garcia, who founded the Afro-Venezuelan Network in Venezuela. So it is truly a pan-African event, um, educational event, our African CNN, if you will, and we strongly encourage people to participate because you will not see this on CNN or CIA networks. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, yeah. So, um what time does it start? How do people tune in? Yeah, so it, you know, obviously it's an international event, so it starts early out here on the West Coast where I am in the U- U.S. So it's 8.30 a.m. Pacific time, 9.30 mountain time, 10.30 central time, 11.30 um, eastern time, 12.30 uh, Atlantic time, uh, 3.30 West African Ghanaian time and 5.30 Azanian or what they call South African time. And people can join through any number of social media channels. You can join through facebook.com slash AAPRP. You can join through africanliberationday.net uh, slash AAPRP. You can join through twitter.com slash AAPRP. You can join through YouTube live AAPRP. It'll be streaming through all of those channels. Oh, that's great. That's really great. Sounds like a whole lot of planning went into this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, You know, and it's actually, it's it's kind of bittersweet for me because my personal plan this year was I had a ticket. I 
was supposed mm-hmm. to be in Zimbabwe right now, but because of this mm-hmm. uh, this pandemic crisis we're facing, obviously that didn't happen. So I wish I was home in Africa, but you know we're still going to make African Liberation Day um, rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was going to Zimbabwe um, this this year as well, and I still have to get yeah. to a because um, I was supposed to be leaving out on Monday. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I was supposed to leave earlier this week, but I mean, I have the ticket and I can use it later. So I'll, you know, as soon as things uh, settle in, I'll definitely be going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the website, I was noticing all the beautiful um, posters from all around the world. Um, you know, for the uh, past and current host of African Liberation Day. Yeah. Yeah, typically, yeah. you know, when it's when before this pandemic situation, like we we organize and participate in last year we had seventeen different commemorations around the world, seventeen cities around the world. And that's typically, you know, what we do. And um, you know, it's it's uh you know, we've had to consolidate it all into one event this coming mm-hmm. Monday. But yeah, usually it's something you know, we're doing it in Kenya and Azania, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Ghana, Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, Guinea, um, Britain, Canada, and in different locations throughout the U.S. Tanzania, too, I think I forgot to mention. But, yeah, today it's all – this year it's all in one uh, virtual location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that's really kind of wonderful the way that – um, you know, we're sort of shifting uh, into these different types of um, uh, ways of presentation, so that we don't don't lose, you know, the connection, and so right. people will be able to like travel to these other countries and <laughs> and and right. visit with our, you know, African diaspora folks. It's, I mean, it's it's kind of wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that um, you know, obviously people are facing overwhelming challenges um, with what's going on right now. And that that's real. But then for those of us who are, you know, always trying to figure out ways to fight for justice, um, there are unique opportunities right now. Um, we can reach out to people all over the world. We can, we have time to um, brainstorm on the things that we can do to make our fight stronger. So, you know, I think that, um, we as bad as things are right now, we should take advantage of it and try to do whatever we can to make it as productive as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about about the history of African Liberation Day um, that was founded in 1958 when um, yes. you know President uh, Kwame Nkrumah convened the first conference of independent states held in Accra, um, Ghana, yes. and yes. and maybe you know, tying it into uh, Marcus Garvey, you know, and the UNIA, because he was doing something really similar already. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and, you know, if people know the history, um, when Ghana was the first country in Africa to become independent, March 6, 1957, and on that day when Kwame Nkrumah gave his independence speech, he talked about Ghana's independence being meaningless without all of Africa being independent. So he made a call that night. Um, for Africans everywhere in the world to come to Ghana and help Ghana be the base of the worldwide African movement for freedom and justice. And a lot of people respond, even if people don't know who Kwame Nkrumah is, a lot of 
a lot of people that people do know responded to his call. Uh, Maya Angelou moved to Ghana, lived there five years as a result of that. Um, W.B. Du Bois and Shirley Graham Du Bois moved there and actually ended up staying there and dying there. People that have gone to Ghana know that because they're both buried there, and you can go there. They've made their their grave sites a historic monument there in Accra, Ghana. Um, and, and Malcolm X, of course, wrote in his autobiography, you know, a highest honor of his life was meeting and working with Kwame Nkrumah. And Malcolm came back after he left the Nation of Islam and he formed the organization of Afro-American Unity, which was to be the U.S. branch to Nkrumah's Organization of African Unity, which was founded in 1963 and then today is known as the African Union. And African Liberation Day, as you mentioned, originally came about on April 15, 1958 as Africa Freedom Day during the conference you mentioned. And then in 1963, with the founding of the Organization of African Unity, it was changed to African Liberation Day. But a lot of events happened that um, helped influence Nkrumah's thinking and other Pan-Africanists' thinking. Um, the situation in the Congo, where Patrice Lumumba was democratically elected uh, for the National Congolese Movement in 1960, and then the Central Intelligence Agency engaged in a, a illegal and immoral campaign to remove him from power and when that didn't work to ultimately assassinate him and to, um, you know, to dissolve his body in acid because they didn't want the world to know at the time um, because of Lumumba and the MNC's efforts to utilize the Congo's vast mineral resources. The Congo is the most mineral rich region on the entire planet earth um, to use that for the Congolese people and for Africa and not for, you know, the interests of Apple Samsung, Motorola, which are the entities that control all of those resources today so that we can communicate on these devices we're communicating with right now. So Nkrumah, you know, learning from that, and then a few years after that, the CIA's, again, illegal and immoral overthrow of his own government in Ghana, um, he learned that we would not be able to achieve African liberation through negotiation. And so in 1968, while he was in Guinea-Conakry, under the protection of the Democratic Party of Guinea and the Secretary, he wrote the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. And in that book, he calls for the unification of all genuine revolutionary Pan-African fighting forces into one unit worldwide to fight for Pan-Africanism, which he defined and we defined as one unified socialist Africa. So African Liberation Day has emerged through all those struggles and now represents the the call to action for Pan-Africanism or one unified socialist Africa and our, and our work on the ground, like we're not on TV, you know, we're not, we're not on, we're not seeking attention on social media. We're engaged in hard on the ground work to, to unite these revolutionary forces. So what, if you tune into the program Monday, what you'll see are representatives of the African Party for Independence of Guinea-Bissau, uh, Amel Car Cabral's organization, participating with us as one. You'll see the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, South Africa, the Zimbabwe Movement for Pan-African Socialists, the, the uh, Democratic Party of Guinea. You'll see all of these organizations operating with us, the Amel Car Cabral Ideological Institute of Nigeria as one as one entity and one voice with one objective, one unified socialist Africa. So that's, that's our work, and that's how we utilize African Liberation Day as a propaganda tool to help us carry out that work. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, the, uh, the work 
is something that's happening throughout the year. So, um, so talk to us about you know sort of what happens, what's been happening between uh, sort of 2019 and 2020. And I know there's always a theme. So, what's the theme this year, and and what are some of the initiatives and work that um, the All African Peoples uh, Revolutionary Party? What are you all working on, um, both locally and globally? So the theme this year is imperialist sanctions against Zimbabwe, Cuba, and Venezuela are acts of war. African people must fight. And so essentially what we're saying with that is that the forces who control the planet right now, the multinational capitalist corporations, are against the interests of humanity. You know, I mean, there's there's really no question about that. And people, this pandemic, especially for people here in the United States, this should be this should have really made this clear by now. Um, you have a small country like Cuba, socialist Cuba, 11 million people, and they've been able through their interferon alpha 2B antiviral drug that they use to eliminate mother-to-child HIV transmissions. They, they're, only, they're the first country in the world to do that. Um, they've been able to use that, that antiviral drug, um, which basically builds up the body's protein so that the body's own immunity systems can fight off infections. They're using that in 50 countries. This is a poor country that's doing that, whereas here you have the richest country in the world in human history, and they can't even develop a comprehensive testing program or any type of antiviral treatment or certainly not a vaccine, nothing. And all, they're, all they can do is tell you you need to go back to work so that these capitalist corporations can, can make money. It only took them 30 days to fall to their knees. That's how great and strong this economy is. You know, so for us, the work is really about helping our people understand these contradictions because so many of us think that, well, this is the richest country in the world. It's better than any country on earth because that's what they keep telling us. And so we believe that and we don't understand that the wealth here is stolen from Africa every day. That's where it comes from. It was stolen through our labor to build this country and it's stolen through the natural resources that that are taken every day to build up the, these multinational corporations that steal the Colton and the Buckside and the diamonds and the gold and the cocoa, you know, and the children in Ghana holding banners saying, when you eat chocolate, you're eating our skin. This is the type of exploitation that fuels the wealth in this country. It didn't come from hard work and industriousness. So what our main work is, is getting our people to understand that. And, and so we don't feel like the only way, the only definition of success is us emulating our oppressors. Here, so that's that's the essence of our work. So, like for myself personally, my work in the party has been I've helped develop our own independent schools in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, in Accra, Ghana, um, and that was some of the work that I would have been doing in Zimbabwe. And then we've also started a number of schools here in the states. Like we we started one in Portland, Oregon, and we have one we're doing here in Sacramento, California, where I live. And we're, we're encouraging people to start what we call community defense work projects, which are efforts to organize our communities outside of Africa so that we can be prepared to defend ourselves. You know, you got these white supremacists and police attacking us. And, you know, we, we're, we have no way to defend ourselves, most of us, other than calling the police, who are virtually the people who are causing the problems for us in the first place. So we want to engage in work to help develop our people's ability to protect ourselves. So this is really the nature 
of the work that we're doing. And we're just looking for people to help do this work so that we can build stronger capacity worldwide. Oh, wow. So so tell us a little bit more about about the um community um well, the community schools and uh, and the um these other projects, the um community defense project because uh, I was thinking about um uh the uh, community ready corps um brother mm-hmm. Terha Ock and and more recently I've seen I saw something on Facebook that um, they were trying to, because uh, they, they do some really wonderful work in the community here in in Oakland and, and also, you know, throughout the Bay Area, but specifically they're located in Oakland, and and they were buying um, gift cards for food for people, and they mm-hmm. were refused, um, Safeway refused to let them purchase uh, cards, and I was thinking, wow, that's, that's kind of unfortunate that we don't have our own grocery yeah. store, right? That we have to yeah. go spend that money at a place that doesn't want our our business and right. yeah right. that was like oh, that was unfortunate um, that that we don't have you know enough grocery stores so that we don't even have to participate in this economy and uh, and then I was also thinking about when you were talking about the anti police terrorism project and you're having a lot of um, of police violence in in Sacramento, not that it's not happening throughout, you know, California sure. yeah. and the Bay Area yeah. and yeah. the country and in the world. But yeah, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, some of these um, projects that you are specifically involved in, uh, starting with the schools. And and say again, I was trying to write it down, but I got Dar es Salaam and you in Tanzania. Um, so you yeah, know um, Mama Akra, C and Brother, Akra, Brother Pete. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so and that's those are just the ones that I've worked with. You know, we we have other we have other projects. There's a school project in Sierra Leone. There are others mm. that I haven't personally worked with, but they're they're operational. Yeah. And and so you know, really for us, it's based in the premise that you know, if you're Af- if you're of African descent, you're African and you belong to the African mm. nation, and whatever. Our entire future is going to be determined based on what happens in Africa. So, in other words, we don't believe that we can create self-determination for us as a people in Sacramento or Oakland or New York or mm-hmm. Brazil. We don't believe that. We believe that it, our fate is going to be tied to what happens in Africa because what happened in Africa is the reason we're in all these other places, nothing else. So we can't disconnect that. So for us, it has to be tied up to that. So. Our strategy to achieve that, as I mentioned, you know, Nkrumah wrote that handbook, and so we're on the ground in Africa doing that work. And and what we want to do now is extend that work, um, obviously throughout Africa, but throughout the African world. And there, as you mentioned, there are a lot of really good community defense projects going on, but ours are probably a little different in the sense that, you know, we're it's 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 more so tied to that objective of Pan Africanism. So really like we want to go into neighborhoods and we want to be able to go door to door and organize people. And we want to be able to say, Hey, are you tired of substandard education? Are you tired of police harassment? Are you tired of uh, drugs being dominantly uh, the dominant economy in our neighborhoods? So then let's get together and let's organize. Let's, let's go door to door. Let's recruit people. Let's, 
Let's get people engaged in political education classes in these neighborhoods. Let's get people engaged in self-defense training. And then once we get, let's get resources together that people need, like counseling and those types of things. Um, and then once we have all of that in place, which really isn't nearly as difficult as it may sound to get those things in place, then what we need to do is go into the community and clean it up. Tell the abusers they got, they got, they can, we got resources for them. They can get help if they need it, but they're not going to be permitted to, to beat up the sisters in the community and, and rob people in the community and cause havoc. And if they do that, we're going to run them out and, and we're not going to call the police. They're going to need to be calling the police. You know, we don't call the police. We're going to build capacity to protect our own communities. So that's what we mean when we say community defense. That's what we want to build. And there are some neighborhoods where we, there's a neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, for example, where I lived for a number of years, and we were able to build up and, and still continue to do a lot of that work there and trying to initiate the same thing here and just in everywhere we can do that. But, again, the, the point of that is not just to have a community in Portland or Sacramento or Oakland, but to link that to the international pan-African struggle because we want to destroy capitalism. That's our objective. That might not be objective of people who are listening, but that's our objective. So uh, in order to do that, it's going to require us to have organization on a worldwide basis. So we're going to have to have national strikes. We're going to have to have national work stoppages. We're going to have to have all of these things that bring this system to its knees, and that's going to require organization. And so for us, our community defense projects that we're building are simply vehicles to prepare us for that, for that higher level of work. Uh, that's really, really awesome. Um, yeah, destroy capitalism. I was I was thinking um as you were speaking about the uh two thousand um what is it? Um two thousand it was it's the decade of the African diaspora. Um mm-hmm. and it's through two thousand twenty four and I was wondering mm-hmm. is the uh all African People's Revolutionary Party, uh, any any objectives and goals tied to to that that particular decade that the um, well, uh, yeah. African Union yes. declared. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, it's 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 kind of different because, like, again, you know, what what our focus is is on just really just getting our people to understand the necessity to unite on the ground wherever we are. So, mm-hmm. you know, to, the way we see it, like a lot of the initiatives that come out of the African Union now, I mean, these are things that are that in a large part are influenced by the work that organizations like ours and other organizations, not just us, certainly, that, that they're doing. So, you know, we, we want to encourage and proliferate the extent to which any efforts are made to unite our people like there there are things going on here right now that are designed to create xenophobia among our people to turn our people against each other you know there's people who are claiming that the best way we can get reparations is to you know line up just those of us born here in the states and and deny access to africans here that are from other places i mean to to us these these are extremely counterproductive approaches. People like Cornell West saying that saying, you know, absurd things like that Africans 
in other parts of the Western Hemisphere haven't got didn't go through Jim Crow like we did. I mean, that's just a complete ignorance of what our people have experienced. Um, everywhere our people went uh, after being kidnapped from Africa, we went to horror and trauma. And it makes no sense for Africans anywhere to be trying to pit us against each other. Like that does nothing but serve the interests of the master. So for us, you know, that's the primary thing right now is getting, because a lot of our people believe that stuff. And so just getting us to understand that um, that is not the focus we need to have. Like we need to, and and then that's going to require, because another thing I've realized over the years, I've never met one person who has negative things to say about Africa. And what I mean by that is, well, they don't really want us over there. Or, you know, we don't really, you know, we built this country here. And people who say things like that, that are, I understand where those things are coming from, but I've never met a single person saying those things who has any real knowledge of African history. So that tells me that we really have to understand like what it, or people, the one other thing that's popular now through the YouTube conspiracy culture is that Africans in Africa didn't fight to save those of us that are over here. Like anyone who says something like that has just not studied African history, period. You know, I can sit here right now and name off 40 instances of, of, of rebellion in Africa, from the Bakongo to the Fulani, all the way down through the Ashanti, all of that, people who fought and died to try to protect us. You know, so that's, that's really to us what needs to happen, and that's really the, like the foundation of our work. You know, so like I mentioned a few schools that I worked in, but we have, you know, there are schools all over Africa and the diaspora, and the schools are just the first step. The other parts of it are the other things I mentioned so that we can begin to organize communities so that we can, you know, really get an understanding of how we can achieve power. And the last thing I say about that is if people, like, still, like, trying to grapple with what I mean by Pan-Africanism and power, look at, look at when I was a child, I was trying to move a refrigerator in my place, and my grandmother was watching me. I was like 10 or 11, and I I was having much difficulty moving this refrigerator. And and she made a comment to me that that elders will understand, um, and it's no no offense meant by the comment. This is what she said to me. She said, you don't have a Chinaman's chance of moving that refrigerator. And the reason why she said that is because that's what people used to say, because for whatever reason – that was the the uh, erroneous assumption, the great Chinese people, that they didn't have a chance of being successful at whatever it is they were endeavoring. And since the Chinese revolution has built up China, the reason why people today have never heard that saying is because people don't say it anymore because China is, is a world power. And, you know, we have we have a lot of issues with how China is is in Africa and how China interacts with African people. Of course, we don't need to, you know, that's a whole different discussion. But my point is that they have power and from that power comes respect for them as a people. And that's the part that our people don't understand really. Like we think power comes from having money or having individual positions within the capitalist system. That's not where power comes from. Power comes from the the organized masses of people. So China's had a revolution and so now their people have power as a result of that revolution, and they have respect. And so we want the same thing. We don't want to get it the same way they got it, but we need the same thing. And once we have power, which to us is the united socialist Africa, then our people, even if they never go to Africa, like Marcus Garvey, you mentioned, never went to Africa. He never set foot 
on the African continent. But you still will benefit from the power our people gain from having that respect that comes from being a world power and controlling what happens with our own resources. So that is the single message that we are trying to get across to our people. Mm. Wow. So um, how how does a person who's interested in becoming more active in um, – in the organization do so like for instance you know the people tune in on monday or they're listening today yeah. and it's like whoa i want to you know i want to work in the school i want to send my child to this school you know i want to sure. travel and get to know my people better so that i can help you know in the work of you know destroying capital capitalism and also in educating my people because it sounds from what you're saying Absolutely. that the majority of the work is just just educating our people on, on what it means to be an African, right? Right, that's right. So the way, the best way to do it is if someone is listening and they're not in California, they're somewhere else in the world, then they should contact our international website, and that's um, aaprp-intl for international.org, aaprp-intl.org. If you're, you know, if you're in Northern California, um, Bay Area, Sacramento area, then you can contact me directly through the blog site that I maintain, and that's www.abetterworld.me.me. So www.abetterworld.me. And then just let me know um, we're in the process of going through another stage of, you know, recruiting new people to come into our work-study process because that's how you get involved with us. Again, for us, it's, you know, we have to, this whole concept of study and then doing work based on the study. So, you know, we're happy to take you through what's involved in doing that, and um, we would be honored to do that. Ah, wow, that sounds really exciting. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm getting ready to retire. I could really, you know, yeah, this is what yes I can do next. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about, uh, Jean Jacques Dessalines, you know, when you were talking mm-hmm. about <laughs> uh, yeah. about some of the um, superficial divisions, you know, between our our peoples, you know, um, just because of you know the enemy uh, planting these seeds, you know, basically weeds, you know, just sort of like dividing us so we can't see each other, you know, over the grasses. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and and, and, it, and it's just, knowledge and education, you know, are the best weed killers, right? <laughs> right, and it's just so it's so absurd because the reality for us, this is no one else's reality on earth except us. That we, you could literally be living here in Northern California and have biological relatives in Brazil, in Nigeria, in Canada, and you don't know them; they don't know you. You 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 can't speak to them because of language barriers, but these these people are your blood because when they kidnapped us, they did not say, well, okay, if all of you are if, are you all biologically related? Okay, you stay together over there. That's not how that happened, you all. Like they kidnapped us violently and took us everywhere in the world. They didn't. We had no say in this process. We we are we had no say in why we're here, sitting here today. And so, and I know, like, again, one of the other things that's out here is, well, well, you know, we've been here thousands and thousands of years. And it's like, 
come on now. I, I mean, I understand. I'm sure there's some of us who came over. Well, certainly we did trade with the indigenous people. Certainly there's no question about that. So I'm sure there's some of us today who have bloodlines that extend back thousands of years in this hemisphere, but that is not the majority of us. And we need to stop acting like that's true. I mean, I, I'm talking to Africans who um, their families are from Georgia and Louisiana. They, they got European names and they're, they're telling me they're found, they've been here thousands of years. And I'm like, you came from the slave plantation. That's how you got the name and where you came from, Georgia. That's how that happened. And I get it. Like, I understand we don't, we don't want to be affiliated with slavery because we have not studied it. So to us, it's a shameful thing. You know, we feel like we were beaten down by somebody and we don't want to look at ourselves like that. But that's because we don't know the history. We don't know our proud history of fighting back. And what I always tell people today is that if you have a rebellious spirit, where do you think you got it from? We've always had that rebellious spirit. I mean, people could look at us today, 100 years from now, and if they don't study it properly, they can come to the conclusion that, well, why are they, why are they letting police shoot them down like that? Why are they letting these Europeans shoot them down? Like, well, how come they didn't do anything? You know, if you don't study it, if people 100 years from now can have that impression of you. That doesn't mean it's correct. So that's why it's so important that we study because we always talk back and we have nothing, nothing to be ashamed of. The only thing we have to be ashamed of is if we don't get involved today to fight to make our lives better. That we should certainly be ashamed of. But certainly our history of what struggles we did engage in to get to this point, that is nothing but pride in that history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a few more minutes? I do. Yes. Okay, super. Um, so tell us how you know how one sort of comes into this kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, way of way of thinking. Um, how did you like? You know, sounds like your grandmother, you know, was really close to you, and you know, when you hang mm-hmm. out with elders, you tend to be a different kind of child. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I know, think it's, it's yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's you know, it's. I mean, all of our journeys are are different, of course. And you know, some people it can be just from you know a cognitive uh, being able to to see things and say like this is not right. I want to do something about it, and you know that's wonderful. For me, it was unfortunately a traumatic experience, and I think that's that's how a lot of us come to it. When I, I grew up, I actually grew up in Hunters Point in San Francisco, and mm. when I was there. Um, I was on the bus when I was 11, and um, some guys got on there that were familiar to me um, from the neighborhood, and they ended up robbing the bus, everybody on the bus. And, you know, they were, like, vicious in their treatment of people and getting all their material possessions. And so when they exited the bus, one uh, one of them saw me, recognized me, and just told me, you know, in curse words, don't say anything. And got off the bus. And so I'm sitting there on the bus traumatized like everybody else. I'm 11 years old. And when the police came, all of the Europeans on the bus said that I was with the guys that, that had robbed the bus, which was insane. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't say anything because these guys would come in your house and, you know, kill everybody in the house. And, and so I, I wasn't say I was traumatized. And so they said this and the police, you know, they threw me down on the dirty floor of the bus and you know took me down to the police station i'm 11 years old 
and um, mm-hmm. didn't call my parents, didn't do it. So, I mean, like that, at 11 years old, I knew then, and, and I, I had a number of instances like that after that, but I knew then that this, there's something really wrong with this system that a, a child could be treated like that, you know, just based on, I, I read this story the other day about this brother. I don't know if you saw it. He was a college professor and the police pulled him over and they said he, they, that some European woman had said that some brother had tried to break in her house and he's, he's just going to work, you know, and mm-hmm. he told them that and he had all his credentials, everything was in order. And they, they said, well, we want to get this woman to see if she identifies you. And so those moments, which, you know, pretty much every African has experienced like this, this person, whatever they say can dictate what happens to me for the rest of my life. Well, that's how I felt on that bus, you know, so it it just triggered all of that and all the other instances. So it's like, it just showed me right there, like, this is not right. And, and this system is just rotten. And as I grew and gained understanding, I just, I just wanted to do something. I did, I did not want people to have to have those experiences that I have. I still don't want people to have to have those experiences that I had growing up. So that's what drove me into this. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that is, that is really traumatizing. Um, yeah, you're 11 years old and you've experienced what everyone else has experienced and then they point the finger at you and right. you, you have no, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you have no, um, no agency, like nobody cares. Right. <laughs> like right. you're guilty right. because, you know, the white gays, you know, everybody says he did it. Like wow, right? And I guess I guess all of the Africans on the bus, it didn't matter. Yeah, and I don't even remember if I'm sure there had to be because it was you know that's just always how it was. But I don't even remember what their reaction was. I mean, nobody came to my aid. I know that, but I mean, and I and I wouldn't even expect them to because it was a horrifying experience. And the way the police come at us, you know, people criticize people for not acting, but. You know, I think that if you're not trained to do that, it's most of the time that's not going to happen. That's why, you know, we need to be organized. So I don't blame people when they don't, you know, people, I think people react the best way they can. And that's why we have to show people how to react, you know. Yeah, yeah. So in in your travels, so how, like, where did you go first and how did, you know, how did you, um, I guess, um, like what happened so that you could be able to function after the trauma, traumatic incidents, and this one and else others that you said you experienced. I mean, for you to, you know, end up going to college, university, and you know, having all these degrees, and then teaching. Like, how did you come in contact with the All African People's Revolutionary Party? Was that was that the moment of you know healing for you? Um, like, how did what happened because. When someone experiences oh, yeah. Yeah. a traumatic, I mean, you could you could have yeah. actually said, well, you know, I'm just gonna just go with the other folks because, you know, yeah. nobody respects me, you know. So what what happened <laughs> from eleven? Well, to, I mean, it was you know, yeah. I mean, it was really like I think something that's not uncommon to what a lot of our people experience. Like I, I and I did have a period because I like I said I had several instances like that, and so I did have a period where I went wayward and was you know out in the street and and doing a lot of knuckleheaded things. And I was just fortunate enough to have um, some of the elders who came and began to pay a lot of attention to me 
and began to talk to me um, about particularly there were particularly some some a couple of brothers who were former Black Panther Party members, um, and a couple of them had gotten into um, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and had you know they just began to tell me things that I never heard before. Like you know you have you have a lot of intelligence, you have a lot of things you could be doing. I no one had ever said that to me, and so I listened to them because I wanted to hear more. And so they took me to when I was 17, you know, after a couple of years of spending time with them, they took me to hear Kwame Ture speak, who was Stokely Carmichael before that. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I knew a little about him, but I didn't know a lot, but I, I knew that he used to really talk about Europeans. And so that's, that was my motivation to go hear him, to hear him do that um, as a, you know, 16, 17 year old. And he, he, he had changed his name to Kwame Ture. And I did, I remember I didn't understand that at all. And then he had a picture, the flyer had a picture of these two men from Africa who that, that didn't, that, you know, it, it, Kwame Nkrumah and Secretary, and I didn't, who he named himself after eventually. And I, I didn't, that, that intimidated me because I didn't know anything about Africa or anything about that. I didn't see myself as an African, none of that. And then he was talking during that lecture about, I remember he said her name several times, but I couldn't pronounce the name because it was an African name. So I just remember Joanne Chesimard and how uh, he talked about us, you know, Sister Asada Shakur. And, yeah. you know, I just I just was motivated after that to find out more because I was embarrassed about how ignorant I was. And so I, you know, started reading. And then that really just started my journey and then working with these cats and then eventually, you know, being able to go to Africa. And, and even, you know, in 1994, going to Cuba and meeting Asada Shakur and getting a chance to interview her. And it's on YouTube, actually. Asada Shakur talks about socialism in Cuba, if people want to see the interview I did with her. But just, um, you know, the party has exposed me to, you know, going from that experience to actually coordinating Kwame Ture's security when he would come here and meeting a lot of people like that and being mentored um, by them over the years. The the brother, the, the one of the brothers who was a panther um, is actually – one of the brothers who wrote the coloring book. And so I just got through finished helping him. He, a publishing company is going to re-release the Black Panther coloring book. And so I helped him with, because, you know, I'm writing, I helped him with the, uh, the, uh, the verbiage, the, the mm-hmm. language in the book. So, you know, just maintaining those relationships, people who, you know, just reached out and had time to spend with me and help me understand that I had, I have value. I had a contribution to make. And so I've just tried to spend the last several decades doing the same for youth, our youth, you know, just helping them understand, like, you do have value. No matter what they tell you, you got value, and there's things you can do, and we need you. You know, that that message really, I had never heard, I never thought that anybody would tell me I was needed, you know, and that really resonated with me, and I made a commitment to to do everything I could to fulfill that. Right, yeah, and the brother who um, who did the uh, the Black Panther coloring book, um, he's the same artist that um, I don't know if his exhibit is still up at the Crocker Museum in Sacramento. Yeah, I can sign you, Cambone. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Right. That's my yeah. big brother. Yep. Yes, oh, indeed. Oh. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the wow. people that brought me into the party. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Nice. Nice. 
Oh, that's really awesome. And you want to tell us any other names of, of these, you know, brothers uh, that, um, you know, taught you, you know, that you have value, that saw, you know, that restored your value to you because, you know, the way that we're treated in society um, really, you know, is, is dehumanizing to the point that we we Absolutely. we don't see ourselves as having humanity anymore. You know, and like you say, value is a really good word for it. Yeah, I mean, there were these brothers in Central California. This was in the late 70s, you know, when I was just coming up through this, um, this period I talked about. Um, There's a brother named Kahende Sawazi. He's in Fresno. Um, And he was an instructor at Fresno City College. And they had a group called the Pan-African Secretary. It was actually a group that was affiliated through Obatashaka. And oh, there were, yeah. so there was Kaihende. Yeah, there was Kaihende. I mean, I'm 16, 17. There was Kaihende. There was a brother, Ingo Yama, another brother, Itabari. And I remember, you know, just little things. Like one day they were, um, they were, uh, uh, we were socializing. And, you know, at that point, I, you know, like most Africans growing up in these inner cities, like I used the N word like it was lunchtime. And um, they, they told, they challenged me on it. No one had ever done that. They challenged mm-hmm. me on using the N word. And we had this discussion about it. And, again, you know, I, I developed this process where um, I was, I was, I've always been able, like, if I realized I didn't know something, I would go and study it. Like, I didn't have that kind of ego, you know, where, no, I don't know it and I don't care that I don't know it. I, I've never been, <laughs> had that kind of thing, that, that issue. So I would study it. And so, you know, they convinced me, and I haven't used That was 1979. I haven't used the word since. And so just mm-hmm. examples like that, you know, they just had a lot of influence on me in that era of just seeing the world differently and wanting to interact and, and engage it differently. And so then, you know, I moved to Sacramento and then met people in the party, and this is where Akin Sonia was and other people. There's another brother, Mateo Shabaka, who's he's gone on to the ancestors um, a year or so ago. And I just spent a lot of time with them, and they really, you know, really helped me understand um, what it meant to say this is my purpose in life. And so, you know, I've tried my best to to do the same and to try to live by that. Well, you know, I only have one child. She's grown. She's working on her Ph.D. in Tennessee. And, um, you know, she – I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, if I died today – she'd have some material resources that she could utilize, but most of what I've contributed to her has been, I think, best served in terms of values, understanding her place in life and how to conduct herself as a human being. You know, I spent a ton of time with her as she's growing up, you know, investing in her in that way and helping her understand that she has value and she has value to me. She has value to society and she has an obligation to use her skills to help our people and to help humanity. You know, I, we have a joke between us. I tell her all the time. I don't have to tell her now because she's, you know, she's demonstrated her commitment to justice. But um, I used to tell her when she was a teenager, if you don't struggle for the people, change your last name so nobody knows you're my daughter. <laughs> you know, that's our little inside <laughs> joke. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's great. So how did you decide to um to pursue the the disciplines that you did, you know, as a scholar? Well, I you know, I read the story 
of Geronimo G. Jaga, who was, you know, of course, wrongly uh. in prison for 27 years. Yeah. And yeah. he talked about he talked about how the elders in Louisiana told him to go to Vietnam and learn the combat skills and bring them back um, to contribute to our people. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was like one of the core reasons why, you know, if you go back to 1969 and December 4th, the Chicago police raided Fred Hampton's apartment and killed him and, and Mark Clark and injured so many other people's right. And then four days later, they raided the L.A. Panther office on Central Avenue. So clearly it was a coordinated effort as a, counter the, as a part of the FBI's, you know, counterintelligence program. And mm-hmm. the only reason why they did not have the same successes in L.A. that they had in Chicago is that Geronimo had trained them in L.A. how to reinforce the office with the sandbags. And so the police mm-hmm. were not able to, they were not able to get in there. And the media came. And so they weren't able to just, you know, kamikaze kill everybody like they wanted to, like they tried to do in Chicago four days earlier. So I read that, and it had a profound impact on me. And so, you know, I thought, well, I can, um, you know, I can kind of, I can kind of do the same thing. Like I can kind of use whatever I can get to help our people. So I went to college specifically. That was my motivation. Like I wanted to earn skills so that I could do what we call commit class suicide. Like I could, instead of getting my education and going to work for the bourgeoisie system and making money and buying big houses, I could use my skills to help organize our people. So I learned a lot of really strong organizing skills in the APRP, and that allowed me many years ago to um, become a union organizer representative for a labor union, which I've worked for for many years, and so, you know, I can earn good money because I work for a union, and I can use that work, that money to help finance the work that I'm doing in the community for the APRP. So that's been my plan, and it's, it's you know, it's worked well. And I'm, like you mentioned, retirement. I'm a few years away from that now. And then my plan is to, um, you know, follow through on this purchase of some land in Ghana and to be there and to, you know, however many years I have left to continue this work. Mm, wow, that's really cool. Uh, and I want you to end talking a little, uh, talking about some of your books because um, I remember hearing you on um, Walter Turner's show, um, Africa Today, you know, talking about your, your, your writing. And, um, yeah, um, someone else wanted you to talk a little bit about that because, um, you you write novels as well as yeah. nonfiction, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I was wondering before we talk about that, um, what what countries haven't you been to yet within the African diaspora that are on your on your your like top five list? Like you're going next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely want to go to Brazil. I have not been there. I have not been to Venezuela. I mean, there's so many places. You know, I've, I've been a lot of places, but there's so many more I haven't been. So I definitely want to go to Brazil. I definitely want to go to Venezuela. Um, mm-hmm. I would love to. I would love to to go to other countries in South America, not not that are not so much um, heavily populated with Africans, but just because of the political history. And then, you know, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been I've been way more places in Europe than I, than I ever wanted to go there, 
But I hope okay. to, you know, there are also a number of places at home in Africa that I want to spend extended time in. But I wanted to say, you know, just on the, the writing piece, like one of the things I've been able to do that I'm really happy about is mm-hmm. use, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, obvi- I'm not, the things I'm writing about are not going to be bestseller lists because <laughs> you, you just don't have, the publish, publishing industry is a criminal enterprise. I tell people that all the time. So you just don't have the promotional support when you're not writing about what they want you to write about. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, so, but I have been able to use like monies I've earned from my books to like we had here, the school we have here last summer, we spent, we sent 15 youth to Ghana and mm-hmm. I was able to contribute um, close to $700, you know, towards that strictly from my book sales. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to, you know, use it in that fashion. So I'm really proud of that. But the messages in the novels are really just about, you know, us being able to come together and organize ourselves and be victorious against the system. Because I think there's, there are a lot of our people that, you know, we've been conditioned to believe that there's no way we can win. The system is too strong. We can't win. And I, I just don't believe that. I think if there's a way for it to, to get where it is, there has to be a way for it to be knocked down there's a way for it to be built up. There's just, it can't be just one and not the other. So um, I just want to like help in any way I can with my writing to encourage people and people read it and they, you know, they tell me that that's, that's what they get from it. So I'm pleased with that. And then, you know, the other book on mass incarceration is just a way, it's just a reference material to help people understand that, you know, this process of throwing people in prison here is just simply about, making money. That's the primary motivation behind it. And we're, we're the throwaway population in this society. We're the population nobody cares about. So the, we're the people who you can throw in prison and get away with it. And these corporate, you know, people don't really, I don't know to the extent that people understand how these multinational corporations profit off of labor from incarcerated persons. And so this is a criminal thing, you know, and I just want to expose that and let people understand that that's what's happening. So the writing, and then the other thing is writing is therapeutic. Like if you write fiction, you can write, you can create a world that you want. And that's therapeutic for me. It's, it helps me, you know, I don't, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't get high and I'm not throwing shade at people to do those things. It's just not, they're just not things that I want to do. And so the writing is how I center myself. It allows me to do that. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about about your your book about mass incarceration. You know, in, in your statement that we're a throwaway people, throwaway population, and you're sort of looking now at you know, so many people at risk. You know, to catch this virus, which is walked in. You know, it's not jumping right. over walls. It's being walked in. And and the whole idea of being being able to physically distance yourself in an overcrowded, you know, environment, you know, mm-hmm. is is ridiculous. You know, it's not not even not even a possibility. Um, you know, even if they, they put a person in solitary confinement, um, there are only so many places like that, and and that in itself is inhuman, <laughs> um, right? And and torturous. Yeah, yeah, and so so that book should be flying off the shelves presently. Um, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's, 
I, you know, and that's another thing. It's like, again, like I said, the publishing industry is a criminal enterprise. So, you know, my experience is like I've, I've written four books. I've, I've had three different publishers and well, four different publishers actually. And I, I've had, I've had challenges receiving money from all of them. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's just the nature of that. But, you know, people, you can just equate it to the record industry. You know, people I think have a general understanding that the record industry is known to be unfair to its artists. Well, the publishing industry is not any different. So it's like you constantly have to battle these people to get it. And like, I'm trying to just, you know, I don't rely on that money to live on. You know, I have a day mm-hmm. job, but I'm, I I use it for the work that I do. So I'm trying to, I try to approach it from that standpoint. But, you know, I'm available. Like if people are trying to write something, I offer this all the time. People are trying to write. So if you're trying to, if you're just trying to write a get rich book, then you need to find somebody else. But if you're trying to write something that, you know, encourages and inspires people and you want to know how to get published. I'm, I'm on a mission against the publishing industry. People can feel free to reach out to me and I'll, I'll help you understand what you need to know to get published. Um, there's a huh. process. Like I already know every book I write, it's going to get published. I don't, I don't have that mm-hmm. issue and I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to pay anything to have it published. So I can help mm-hmm. people if they reach out to me about that. But that's, you know, that's, that's the nature of any industry in this system. Oh, how kind of you. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's really great. Give your contact information again. <laughs> yeah, so the the best way the is through the, mm-hmm. the website, blog site. It's www.abetterworld.me, abetterworld.me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are you working on now? I'm working on another novel. I actually have two things. I have a, a community defense manual that I'm writing, like how the step-by-step. And there are videos on YouTube. Like people can go to YouTube and there's how to build revolutionary community defense. And it's a really step-by-step presentation, but I'm also writing a manual to accompany that. And then I'm writing another novel installment. So I'm working on oh. it concurrently. Yeah. Yeah. Is your novel a continuation? Because I noticed that. Um, yeah. Uh, some of the story continues. You've got a protagonist. Uh, you could tell us about her. Yeah. And she she's over at least two two novels, right? Yeah, it's continuing now. It's, it's switched up a lot, but it's continuing. And I'm also working on another one. I just have to figure out some things on how to develop it. So I always try to have like two or three things because, you know, you get kind of stagnant with some of some of them so I can switch to the other one and keep going. And that way I can just always be writing something. I'm going to spend – I've been on these meetings planning African Liberation Day. I'm going to spend some time today writing in one of the projects I'm working on, at least. Oh, and and what are the – you said you're working on three things, right? You, so you yeah. told us about the community defense, um, how to build um, revolutionary – Yes, revolutionary uh, community defense, yeah. Oh, revolution community. Yeah, I'm trying to take notes, yeah. and I can't. I can't yeah, write as sure. fast as you're talking. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. So that's that's one. That's the manual, and then you mentioned um, the novel, and then something else. So what yeah, is it? Something I'm, else. It's I'm I'm working. It's another novel concept. It's about a young okay. sister who is um, she wakes up and she's in a dystopian environment. And she's by herself, and she's injured, 
And so it's about how she uh, proceeds to try to survive. Um, and and what, what's happening around her is that white supremacists have just declared themselves in power. And so they've, they've basically said any, anybody that's not white that's caught will be either executed on site or imprisoned for, you know, mass labor. And so she's trying to, she's trying to find people to link up with and to, you know, to, to fight that off and then just survive. So I'm trying to develop that one as well. Oh, interesting. Sounds like a cross between um, Boots Riley's film, um, you know, where um, people are volunteering to be incarcerated um, because it's called right. worry-free, right? Right. <laughs> and and, and uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, right? Right, right. And it's just like, you know, for me, especially as a man, like I want to – I'm always trying to um, – like most of the characters are, are usually women – and they're mm-hmm. usually people that can think and fight and do all those things. So I, I, that's just, you know, because that's been my experience in life. Like most of the time it's been the women who have been the ones who were really willing to really engage in the struggle head on. I'm not saying men don't want to, but I'm saying like women don't get that credit for being willing to step up and make sacrifices. You know, so I, I, you know, that's my way of trying to pay some honor to that, of saying like, yeah, that that's a real thing, even though it's not talked about. Yeah, yeah, it seems like you know that might be the theme of you know the courage equation. You know that that looks yeah. like your 2014 book. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was um, yeah, I was just looking. Um, it's uh, 542 pages. Um, right, and right. I was wondering, um, are they do they turn fast? Like you've got your paradox principles is seven hundred and forty two, forty forty pages. Yeah, <laughs> like you, you really made do. some investments. <laughs> yeah, I think they do, and I think it's because of. Um, I think the the thing I'm most proud of is the concept, right? Like um, mm-hmm. in those books, like a lot of people look at it and they they misunderstand it. People that read it get it like it's it's like um i wanted to tell the story from the standpoint of um what what i think we need so even though the person who's talking is european in those books it's not it's not about that person it's about that person has been um brought into an african environment and they've had to learn how to respect that and well they didn't have to learn how to they they respect it but um, the the people who are making the decisions are mostly African women, and just understanding that that's that's a reality because to me that's how it is mostly in life, but it's never really portrayed like that. So you know the training that happens, the direction, the uh, uh, the the strategizing for the results, the decisions to challenge the power structure, all of that comes from that element, and just you know making sure that 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 voice acknowledges that, you know, because I think that um, one of the things I want to accomplish is all the work that I've done over the years, like I've, I've done, I've helped organize uh, uh, security teams to protect activists from white supremacists that come out armed and they come out with guns and they're, you know, doing that. When I was in Oregon, I was doing that um, for one of the, one of the, there's a sister up there that, 
did a presentation. Her name is Walida Amarisha, and she does this wonderful presentation, Why There Are No Black People in Oregon. And when she went out to do it, initially these neo-Nazis would come out and threaten her. So, you know, I told her, well, I'll help organize the security team. So we did that. And so, you know, what I learned from that process is, um, you know, every time we stand up for our uh, progress, white working class people are the first people in our way. You know, so something needs to happen with those people. <laughs> you know, some, somebody needs to be working with those people to get them to understand that um, we are not the people they need to be trying to prevent from doing anything. Like, we're not stopping them from doing anything. You know, we're trying to just survive and exist. So that was one of my motivations for writing it the way I did um, because, you know, they need to be able to see, like, what their proper role is in society also. Because, I, I, you know, I don't think we struggle in a vacuum. Like, we're in a world together, and so we have to, you know, make those types of connections. So I think it landed well. You know, people say that it landed well, you know, and I I'm just want to continue to do whatever I can to contribute to those discussions. Right. Wow. Interesting. So, um, wow, this has been a really – Really um, very, very um, uh, enjoyable conversation with you. I'm glad you had some time, yeah. and I know you're hecka busy. Um, but thank you so much for spending so much time with us. And um, so who are you looking to, um, you know, um, looking for as an audience? And is it, um, you know, you know, African Liberation Day for the whole family? And I know yeah. usually when... Yeah. When the uh, African Liberation Day is, you know, in its other iterations, um, there there's usually um, culture mixed in with yes, the, the talking. Yeah, And so I was yeah. wondering if you could maybe sort of talk about how the day is going to go, and is it going to be all day, um, a couple of hours, and yeah, how how is it going to look? And so far as I me, mean, you yeah, mentioned, so you know, the the main speakers and things like that, mm-hmm. where they're going to be um, coming from as far as the diaspora. Yeah, and so thank you for bringing it up. I mean, there's plenty of edutainment, and it's pan-African edutainment, so it'll be very good, very interesting. The The program itself is three hours, and as I mentioned, okay. it starts 8.30 a.m. Pacific time, and mm-hmm. so it's three hours exactly, and there are two panel discussions of about 40 minutes each, and then there's one other presentation. And then the rest of it is going to be entertainment. And we have uh, entertainers from Azania, South Africa, from Ghana, um, from from um, the U.K., from the U.S. So it's a broad Pan-African spectrum of singers and performers. So that's going to be extremely entertaining and interesting for people. And then we also have the uh, the – Kwame Ture Black Star of Labor Award presentation, and then the Mawina Coyote Daughters of Africa Award presentation. And the recipients for those two, for the Kwame Ture Black Star of Labor Award, is going to be um, the Cuban medical community, who I mentioned have um, oh, nice. they, they're working in yeah they're working in dozens of African countries right now, helping. No one's talking about how COVID nineteen has been contained throughout most of Africa, and, and they have they have a lot to do with that. Um, mm-hmm. And then the uh, Mawina Coyote Daughters of Africa Award is going to the sister from um, Bolivia who has been rising up in protest. You know, these, these thugs have taken over Bolivia 
um, in the last several months. And so she's been in the forefront of organizing resistance to try to protect our people. So that's going to be the extent of the program. And, you know, it's going to be, a, like I said, a, a, a lot of everything for everybody. So it's definitely a family event. Nice, nice. And after um, uh, after it's over, is it going to be, is it going to live on the um, uh, the yes. website? Oh, okay. Yes, it will live through, there'll be a YouTube, it's going to, everything's going to be recorded so you can mm-hmm. look at it. And then even the portion, because the program is going to be in multiple languages, um, because mm-hmm. again, like I said, you know, we have presenters mm-hmm. from all over the world. So um, what we're going to do, some uh, the a lot of it is going to be translated Monday, but what we're going to do after that, when we post the video, is work to ensure um, uh, most of the program, if not all, is translated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Oh, that's great. Wow. And and could you tell me the name of the the award um, that the Bolivian sister is getting? I I don't know those names. Oh yeah, sorry. It's so it's the Mawana Coyote Daughters of Africa Award. And Mawana Coyote was a sister who was the longtime coordinator for the All African Women's Revolutionary Union within the All African People's Revolutionary Party. We have a women's union, and she was the longtime coordinator from. Um, the early 80s until her death in 2001, she was the coordinator. And she was really like the, you know, a lot of people look at the APRP and they look at Kwame Ture, and that's certainly, um, there's certainly valid reasons to do that. But we, we those of us that have been around the party, we, we call Marlon her, she was the mother of the APRP. And um, oh. we've missed her sorely since she's been gone. But um, she um, she was has she's buried in Gambia. I've had the privilege and opportunity to go and and pay tributes at her website there in Gambia, West Africa. Oh. And so we we named the award after her. Yes. Oh, nice. Where in Gambia is she? So it's just outside of Banjul, the city of Banjul. Okay. And um, okay. yeah, you just take a car ride out there, and she's yeah mm-hmm. she's buried out there. And then the the school in Sierra Leone which mm-hmm. was um, created by the Pan-African Union of Sierra Leone, uh, is named after her, the Mawana Coyote Youth Center. Oh, and she's a sister from Brooklyn, grew up in oh, Manhattan, okay. actually Harlem, grew up in Harlem and was an activist, a, a, a renter strike activist in Harlem and, you know, mm-hmm. met, met Kwame Ture and decided to join the APRP in the early 70s and just a strong mm-hmm. sister. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Oh, wow, cool. Thank you. And and then the um, uh, the award that's going to the uh, the Cuban medical community. Um, mm-hmm. um, tell me the type, the name of that award again. So it's 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 labeled after Kwame Ture, the Kwame Ture Black Star of Labor Award, okay, and it's both just them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. I don't think I've ever heard of these two awards before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we give them every year at African Liberation Day. And, um, you know, we try to pick um, someone, and we try to make sure women are always, and that's why we have the Daughters of Africa Award. We try to pick people who are making concrete contributions to the world, people that are never going to be recognized by, you know, imperialism and, and bourgeoisie society, So, but people who mm-hmm. make real contributions. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing I really like about the uh, All African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, I remember when um, Javad was was with us, uh, he would always talk about how, you know, patriarchy was something that that men needed to um, uh, 
right. uh, to consciously, you know, um, acknowledge, you know, and, and, and male privilege, you know, um, as yes. they were working yes. in these various movements for, you know, African liberation. And and I don't think I'd ever heard anyone say that before out loud. Yes. And yes. it yes. just was, you yes. know, just really um, made me respect, you know, him a lot. And I just loved that, you know, he recognized, and I know he wasn't the only one that recognized yes. that, that patriarchy is a problem. <laughs> yeah, we actually, in the party, we have an anti-patriarchy uh, working group that oh, does work oh, okay. throughout the party, and I, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm fortunately a member of that group, and we do a lot of group, we do a lot of work, we do seminars, we do, you know, a lot of work designed to raise the consciousness around that question. So it's definitely, um, you know, we see patriarchy, white supremacy, and we even homophobia. We see all these things as appendages of the capitalist system, you know. So we we want to wipe all that out. We want all our people. Uh, we can't say, well, yeah, all our people are welcome except this segment of our people. They're not welcome. Exactly. Yeah, the minute we do right. that, we're finished. Like we have to, we have to accept everybody. We have to mm-hmm. respect everybody, rather, I should say. Right, right, and and that's sort of you know it's real fitting with all African people, right? Not exactly. some African people. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, because right. I mean, I you know I had an argument about this the other day with someone. They were saying, well, we can't, you know, we can't, we just can't accept gay people. I'm like, so where does that stop? Like, do the next do we say if you're overweight, you can't, I mean, that, that could, you, you, once you open that door, then mm-hmm. you, you know, you could, you don't have, it's, it's no longer objective. It's now it's about, you know, whatever people think. And since people aren't, we aren't as conscious as we need to be, that's dangerous. So yeah, that's why we're doing that type of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's certainly commendable. Yeah. Well, I will certainly be taking advantage of, of these wonderful offers of help <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that definitely. you've extended. Um, yeah. 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 Um, oh, this is so cool, and you're and you're you're in my hemisphere, so that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right. Same time zone. <laughs> I, I have to anyway. say, you know, a lot of this work is so many time zones. I have to like I'm helping. I'm working with this sister in Canada. She's in Nova Scotia. And she's in okay. our party, and we're doing a we're doing a Bye. school project. Cause guess what? Police terrorism against our youth is a problem there. So we're doing this project. I'm helping her launch the school project, and so we always have to be conscious of these time zone differences. So it's it's nice to talk mm-hmm. to someone where it's not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, you know we're. You know, we have a diaspora because we are all over the place, right? It, yeah, that's right. It, that's it's right. like a literal thing, <laughs> the African yes, diaspora. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, you know, I guess um, since it is what it is, you know, we could look at the blessing that it is because that means that we can impact the whole world because we are everywhere, right. literally. Everywhere. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Impact the world for the better. Um, yeah. You know, when... When we're working for the good of African people, you know, the whole world benefits. That's right. And that's what we are going to do. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, cool, cool. Well, I'm going to let you get back to your writing and your other work and looking forward to Monday. I'm going to be letting everybody know. Yeah, and thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much, Sister Wanda, for having us on and letting us, you know, let people know what's going on. Oh, yeah, I was like, I've been asking for a while. I'm like, oh, they must be so busy. They're not, and I and I looked to see if I had, um, 
our brother's um, phone number, and I don't have it, but I have mm-hmm. yours now. I'm going to put you in my, yeah, my, my phone book. Yeah, and I'm, like, asking all over the place, can I get an interview? Can I get an interview? Yeah, <laughs> and you had mentioned, like, getting some sisters. We can definitely do that, so next time we can get a couple of sisters to come on. We can do that. That'd for be sure. really super. Yeah, I haven't talked to yeah. um, any women about this in a long time, and I know you know that yeah. that the uh, you know the leadership and the planning is always diverse. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like you mentioned, Sister Nehanda, she's one of the yeah. people that steered me in this organization early on. She's still very active and very positive mm-hmm. element in the uh, NPRP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you all are a really wonderful organization, and I know you had a big year. Last year was an anniversary year, right? Yeah, it was 2018, uh, 50 years. Oh, was, yeah. oh two years yeah, ago. Okay. Yeah, we had a big we had a big event in Ghana that um, I had the privilege of participating in. So, yes, absolutely. Right, right, and I wish I would have known about it because I think I was in Ghana. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah, you would have been yeah. welcome to come. Yeah, I was, yeah we I had a whole year. week of activities, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like, oh darn. Okay, so when's the next big one? Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, make sure that well, I... we're we're having a we're we're planning a big meeting in Africa next year. Um, oh, but it's a membership meeting. But yeah, we're definitely going to oh. do that. So I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to that. But yeah, but there may be some other elements. I'm not sure of all the planning yet. But yeah, we'll definitely be there. We we'll make that happen. Right. Right. Okay, cool, cool. Well, hopefully, you know, um, I'll be uh, in Zimbabwe next year because um, I'm a part of a Fulbright um, grant. And, yeah, through Peralta. And we were supposed to be um, in uh, South Africa this summer. Yeah. But, you know, because of the the travel restrictions, we we couldn't go. So, um, right. so the Fulbright committee said that we could put it off for this coming year, the twenty 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 one. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. So it'll be in South Ooh. Africa, and then um, then I was going to just hang out in uh, Zimbabwe for yeah. a couple of weeks or so because I really yes, love Zimbabwe. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, I'll be there as soon as as soon as I'm allowed to go. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. That's excellent, excellent. So are you still teaching? Well, teaching in these schools, yeah, that's a regular thing. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, yeah, yes. Your schools, the um, AA, yeah. Um, yeah. TRP schools? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All righty, cool. Well, you take good care and looking forward okay, to, to Monday. Yeah. And congratulations on all the planning. This is going to be really yeah. phenomenal. Oh my goodness. Thank you very much. Yeah. And you enjoy your weekend and we will see you on Monday at African Liberation Day. All righty. <laughs> okay. Forward yeah. ever. Are you take a Yeah, forward forever. Right. Peace and blessings. All righty. That's gonna be so awesome. So the website, um uh it seems like, you know, um uh the global African uh Liberation Day is on all all platforms, so you can hit it in a variety of ways. Um, as um, Brother um, Ajamu said, you know, Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, and uh, and all of the information is um, 
on um, AfricanLiberationDay.net um, for those that are in this country. And then there's an international uh, website. So I'm going to play um, something from Val Sarant, uh, D-Day Africa, and then we're going to rebroadcast a really wonderful interview with um, uh, uh, Mr. Bertram Clark, who um, is a collector of black veteran uh, memorabilia, and he's also a veteran, and, you know, Monday is also Memorial Day, so it's a day to remember those men and women that gave their lives for uh, this country, and um, and people of African descent have been doing this as long as, you know, going back to the, I guess, the Revolutionary War. And I think it all has to do with something uh, our brother uh, Ajamu mentioned about, you know, sort of the value, you know, this this particular nation and the Western nations in general have not seen people of African descent as with value, as 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 human beings, as people, and so, you know, the whole idea of of sacrificing your life, you know, for the nation. Um, I guess supposedly was a way to increase the value so that you know you would go from being a thing to a personhood, which you know of course didn't happen um but anyway, here is uh d day Africa and we're gonna honor our 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 veterans anyway um irrespective of the of the um of the outcome uh because we value their lives.
that was D-Day Africa featuring our brother Val Serrant um, on um, Steel Pants. And we are, again, going to be playing um, an excerpt from uh, a broadcast, um, I guess, February 2019, um, when Mr. Bertram Clark, who is a collector, historian, and Vietnam veteran, uh, featured African-American um, soldiers from the Revolutionary War to World War II in an exhibition that was at the San Francisco War Memorial um, Veterans Building. And uh, and it was a really, really marvelous exhibition. And, um, and actually, the exhibit, he actually extended that exhibit and uh, featured veterans from the Tuskegee um, Airmen at the um, uh, Marines Memorial um, Theater because at that time there wasn't a play being um, performed there or by the uh, African American Shakespeare Company on the Tuskegee Airmen. And so it was just really, really marvelous to be able to facilitate that. So we are going to again um, play this uh, interview with uh, Mr. Clark, who um, lives here in Oakland, and uh, you're going to really enjoy um, his research as well as him talking about um, just why why he collects, you know, these artifacts to be able to share with others. Hey, Mr. Rachel Clark, how are you? Good morning, Wanda. Hey, I want to thank you for having me on your show this morning. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for hanging in there. I'm running a little bit late, but hey, um, really happy that you can join us to talk about this wonderful um, exhibition that you have pulled together uh, featuring African-American soldiers from the Revolutionary War to World War II. And, and yourself, you are also your veteran of the Vietnam War, and you're a collector and historian. Um, uh, when we were, like, reconnecting after many years, um, you reminded me that that I had um, you had an opportunity to actually see um, your your kente cloth uh, collection, uh, some of which was at the uh, African American um, Museum and Library in Oakland. And I I'm not sure was some of yours also in the at the Oakland Museum in that kente exhibit as well. Yes, it was, and and that's when we met at that right. particular. Um, yeah, the opening of the the African American. I'm sorry, the African textile exhibit that mm-hmm. was touring the country at that time, and right, I happened to right. be uh, one of the local collectors that they selected to uh, to uh, exhibit some of my uh, my kente cloths in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't don't realize that there are so many different kinds of kente cloth, and um, and I didn't even know at that time that you know that you were a collector of. Um, you know, of war memorabilia, uh, you know, of our, our African-American ancestors. So talk about your um, your exhibition that is having its reception uh, this uh, Saturday, February 9th from 2 to 5 at the San Francisco War Memorial Veterans Building in the Veteran Gallery Room uh, 102. And that's that's the um, the building that's right on the corner of McAllister and Van Ness in San Francisco. Uh, people might... We know it for the Herbs Theater, but um, it's right next to the War Memorial Opera House, which is a little bit further toward um, 
Grove Street. Um, yeah, but tell us about about this exhibition and and how you came to have so many so many pieces. It's like it's huge, and that's not all of it, right? <laughs> yes, that's correct. Yeah, I, actually, it's uh, it, the title is "With Hope and Dedication, We Have Served African Americans mm. in the Military from the Revolutionary War through World War II," and it's a, it's mm-hmm. a love project for me. It's an onboard mm. collection. It's dedicated to my grandfather and uh, the millions of forgotten African American men and women. Uh, who've served in the, in the armed forces, the America's armed forces, from the beginning, like I said, from the Revolutionary War. Uh, these strong black men and women uh, fought for the freedom of, of, of people here in America uh, and uh, and overseas, but at the same time they were denied uh, democracy, respect, human dignity, and freedom in, in this country, in their own country. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I commemorate them for that, and I think they, they should... Uh, should be it sh- they should be highlighted uh you know every day not just not just for black history month um and m- many people ask me why 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 just go up to to 1940 uh, to uh to uh, the uh world war 2 and the reason mm-hmm. is because um uh, up until that point they were denied democracy and respect and what have you? Not in uh, Harry Harry S. Truman, uh, President Harry Truman signed the Executive Order 9981 um, uh, to desegregate the armed forces in let's see, it was on July the 26th, 1948, which is like three years after World War II. But up to that point, uh, these black women and, uh, and men uh, had had suffered so many indignities and discrimination right in the in the armed forces. So anyway, this is why I only collect I usually just collect up tonight to uh to World War Two because any progress that uh African Americans have made in the armed forces since that time were on the backs and blood and sweat and tears of those folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed um, you know, um you you have this wonderful, wonderful photograph of uh, the Field Medical Supply Depot um, with black women um, in it um, with their uh, black crosses um, or maybe their red crosses on their foreheads. And I I was just thinking about, you know, the black cross, uh, you know, Marcus Garvey's um, contingent of of black women who um, were healers and would would respond to uh, disasters in the community or needs in the community, and this is this is in Washington D.C., November 8, 1918. Why don't you could talk a little bit about that particular image and uh, yeah, who these women are? Well, those women, you know, first of all, it's very very difficult to find images of African American women in the military mm-hmm. uh, having anything yeah. to do with the military uh, during World War Two. I'm not sorry, during World mm-hmm. War One. Well, anyway, I came mm-hmm. across this this photograph. I'm gonna make this a long story, but I came across this photograph online, and I did research on it. Actually, uh, African American women were not allowed to go overseas they were, uh, as nurses um, up until the, uh, the 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 Second World War. These women uh, were volunteer women who were uh, worked for the Red Cross, and and this was in Washington D.C. Uh, and they, what they did basically was to uh, process men, uh, African American soldiers, here in the United States before they went to overseas and when they came back. So basically, they they did all the medical um, um, nursing that 
the African-American soldiers needed um, because, you know, it was segregated times. And so that's that's basically what they were about. Like I said, it's a fairly long story, and there's not a lot of information uh, that I can give you except for, for that at this particular point. They were, they were basically um, um, there to treat African-American men here in the United States, and uh, and when they came, back, you know, when they left, and when they came back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this exhibit, um, which opened on the 22nd of last month, uh, and it extends through February 19th, so it's not going to be up that long. Um, is open. It's a free uh, gallery. It's open Wednesday today through Sunday each day uh, from one to eight. So it's got you know you can you can hang out there for a minute and look at all the work. Uh, and again, the location is 401 Van Ness Avenue at McAllister in San Francisco. And you can take the Civic Center BART and get off and walk up. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about the you know the collecting process. And I think you mentioned that you were inspired by by your grandfather. Um, and you know, and so you dedicate to him. That's right. Uh, I uh, I'm a collector. Like, uh, like I was telling you. Um, we were talking before um uh yesterday <clears throat> i have been a collector of african americans uh uh and african um art and and photographs for 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 at least thirty five years and one of my favorite spots uh, years ago was to go into uh, a antique shop on uh they're still there called the people's bazaar in Burke on adeline and one day, uh, um, I, I walked in there. This lady would wait on me all the time, an elderly lady. Uh, and one day, I walked into the store, and I had never seen a lady move so fast. She, she, she ran up to me and said, "I have something that I know you're going to buy. I think you, I think you're going to really like this." But to make a long story short, she went back in the the back and pulled out this really dusty, uh, cracked up, uh, framed, uh, panoramic photograph of uh, of a mil- of World War One. Uh, soldiers, black soldiers, and uh, she said, "Well, you know, this is what I, what I have for you." She said, "But please buy it, have, restore it, and uh, I'll give it to you for ten dollars." I said, "Ma'am, I can't I can't afford to pay uh, to get that restored." But she said, "Trust me, you you want this this uh, <clears throat> this photograph." So anyway, I had to make a long story short. I made I had it restored, and there was an inscription on the bottom right hand corner. That I, I could never read it. Finally, we figured it out. It said 801 Pioneer Unit. So I, I researched it, found out it was from um, uh, a, uh, a photograph of uh, was taken at Camp Zachary Teller in Louisville, Kentucky, in 1918 around the same time that my grandfather had been drafted. We're, we're, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and he was he had been born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, and his draft card that we found um, gave the, around the same date that this photograph was taken. When me and my brothers really started looking at this photograph, we saw a guy in the back row that looked almost exactly like my youngest brother did when he was around 18 years old. So we think that this is our grandfather in this in this this photograph. We can't be sure. But that's what inspired me to start collecting. That's what, that was uh, that, along with other things, uh, inspired me to start collecting African Americans in the military. Um, that particular photograph, and it's in that photograph that I had restored, is in the exhibit itself, and it sits alongside uh, this panoramic photograph sits alongside the 
photograph that we were talking about earlier of the um, the uh, the women of Red Cross nurses, and it's a, it's really striking. I mean, it's something that that uh, most people uh, you know go directly to when they come to the uh, the exhibit. It's actually the center of my exhibit and the uh, the basic of the uh, my collection of African Americans in the military. Wow, what a great story! Wow, you yeah. found your grandfather. Yeah. Like, that is so amazing. Yes, I went. I went to, back to the uh, the store the other uh, uh, oh, a couple of months ago, and the, the lady has passed away. She had only passed. She had passed away, uh, I think, in November of of uh, of twenty of of, the, of of last year, twenty eighteen. And mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I just wanted to. But anyway, that's uh, that's the story of that. That's the story of the beginning of my my collection of African Americans in the military. Wow! Wow! Yeah, and um. And and so um, the late Richard Over Overton, who who wow he lived to be a hundred and twelve. That is amazing. Yes, that is amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, he's the he is the oldest. Actually, he was the oldest um, American. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, you know when he died, he was one hundred twelve years old. But he, but the, uh, regarding his, he was the, also the oldest uh, World War Two veteran. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he died. Uh, um, I think it was December the twenty seventh of, tw- of right, last year. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you know him too? No, I didn't. Uh, I think I forget. I think he's he's from Virginia. I think he's in in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, mm-hmm. But I just saw I uh, saw saw it on the internet, and uh, mm-hmm. it was on, actually it was on CNN. It was all over the the the, the uh, national radio stations and and news stations, uh, and that because of the fact that he was the oldest. Uh, American at the time, mm-hmm. and also the uh, the oldest uh, Viet, uh, sorry, World War II veteran. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's pretty amazing. So, um, so tell us some more about about you know the exhibit. Um, do you um, uh, do you have artifacts like uh, uniforms and <coughs> medals and things like that in the exhibit? Oh yes, I do. I, there's there's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> That is a, 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 a an authentic uh, World War One um, uniform uh, with the uh, with the uh, that and and, uh, and helmet that the Harlem Hellfighters wore uh, during World mm. War uh, World War One. Are you familiar with the Harlem Hellfighters? No. Um, some people aren't. Most people aren't, and I wasn't either before I uh, before I did research. But they, anyway, they were a unit out out of uh, out of New York. Uh, the African Americans uh, in World War One were were trained basically to do uh, 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 to do uh, menial work, uh, uh, basically f- uh, uh, clean up work for the uh, white soldiers, more or less. They were pioneer a lot of pioneer groups, and um, uh, meaning that they would go in and do construction work, tore, tear down uh, homes or whatever they needed to do. Uh, uh, Tear down, uh, you know, uh, clear forest and whatever for the white soldiers to come through, and you know, uh, uh, and have a, a battleground more or less. Well, um, <clears throat> the French needed more troops. They asked the American um, generals for for more troops. Person who was uh, General Person, who was the head of the American forces in uh, in World War One overseas refused the French that his white soldiers he basically said well we'll give you these these black soldiers that you can let you, you, they can do your menial work the 
Sprint said, no, we're not, we're not going to waste that kind of label, um, that kind of uh, manpower. We're going to train these guys to be fighters. That's what they did. Uh, they supplied uh, the uh, the Americans with their own with their equipment, the French equipment, including their blue the blue colored helmets and their rifles and what have you. And the Americans wore the the uh, Hellfighters wore their their their, um, their their army their regular army uniforms, the American army uniforms. But in any case, they became the most highly decorated um, uh, divisions uh, in in World War One. Came back as heroes, war heroes. They were they were war, actually war heroes in in France. But when they came back to the United States, they weren't they weren't considered as heroes. Uh, the French gave them the highest honor, a uh, military honor uh, that they award, and it was the Croix de Jure. Um, and they were, you know, they were called the Harlem Hellfighters by the Germans because of the fact they were such uh, hellish fighters. You know, they were just just really they killed the uh, many many Germans, and 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 had uh, had casualties, but very few uh, captured were captured by the Germans. But but in any case, uh, uh, <coughs> these uh, that this particular uniform that we're referring to, with the Croix on it is and and the and the blue helmet is in the exhibit, and, and in honor of the Harlem Hellfighters. And we have more information on on them in the exhibit. We have articles on them on the heart of the fighters and also books that you may want to reference. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, because, you know, we, we know a lot about, um, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. Um, but, yeah, I've never heard about the Harlem Hellfighters. Well, um, that's, uh, wow, Tuskegee that's which, which predate them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, well, we, we also have an exhibit uh, within the exhibition on the Tuskegee Airmen, who were mm-hmm. the uh, the first uh, African American fighter pilots in uh, in World War II? Um, mm-hmm. The the Tuskegee Airmen were 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 uh, were, were commanded by um, General Benjamin Davis Jr., who was the first Air Force, uh, black Air Force general, and um, he, they were they were highly decorated and, and highly highly uh, they the, the, the uh, they were also um, in the beginning, they were uh, the United States government actually didn't want black pilots. Uh, you know, they, uh, they didn't want. But Eleanor Roosevelt uh, persuaded her husband that they that they needed to be, uh, you know, tried out more or less. And so uh, that's how they, they be, basically that's how they really became uh, started to become famous. Because she 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 personally went to Tuskegee. And flew in a uh, a fighter of uh, a jet with one of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen to prove that she had mm-hmm. faith in their uh, their abilities. Uh, that mm-hmm. was photographed and uh, you know they circulated that picture circulated around the uh, around the world. So um, anyway, all that information is there. There's a lot more to the Tuskegee Airmen than I'm saying now. You know, I'm kind of rushing mm-hmm. for time, but basically uh, they were very very well, you, highly you decorated. Don't, you don't have to rush. I mean, if you have time, I have time. You don't have to rest. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, this is my first. You know, that's my first time talking on the radio, so I, maybe I'm, I'm resting no, because no, I'm you, nervous. I don't no, know. you. No, you don't have to rush. Um, yeah, because I'm looking. I'm looking at a photograph um, that Eric um, uh, Murphy, um, uh, who um, is curator, one of the, is a curator with you of of this exhibition. Um, 
Uh, so he, in he's front actually, of he, this, he actually installed it. He he helped he helped he help installed install it. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, this is looks like a piece of military equipment, and it's in front of this drum uh, that says 363rd Infantry something. And so, what is? It looks like a. I don't know. It's not a cannon. Um, I don't know what this thing is. Well, I mean, it's, it's what it, it's what it is. It's a cannon, uh, World War One cannon, cannon, and it's it's a part of the oh. permanent exhibit that's there at the uh, oh. the War Memorial Gallery there, uh, and okay. it just happens to be in the in the section, the World War One section that I that my exhibit <laughs> is in, so it ties oh. right into the, the to the exhibit, and that that cannon, and also there's a. Uh, there's a uh, a caisson with uh, with with am- an ammunition um, uh, uh, carrier that's also back there uh, in that in that section where the World War One the Harlem Hellfighters exhibit is and and uh, the um, the women that we was the photograph of the the nurses that we were referring to and my grandfather's photograph with uh, his his unit. They're all in that same section, um, you know. It all ties in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a beautiful. It's a. It's a. It's something that you have to see for yourself to, you know, to to really enjoy. Uh, um, we're just hoping that that everybody comes out on uh, on Saturday. <coughs> excuse me, on Saturday mm-hmm. from two to five uh, for the opening um, reception, and and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and really look at the whole exhibit. It's huge. It's have a lot of things in there. Yeah, how many um, pieces again do you have? Oh, it must be. I say probably about three hundred pieces altogether, including photographs and posters. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mm-hmm. conservative. Mm-hmm. It could be up to. I think about. It's actually about three hundred and fifty pieces. Okay. Of, mm-hmm. mm. And and so what didn't make it into the exhibition because everything wouldn't fit, right? Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> several, you know, several photographs. Um, one one of uh, of, uh, of Josephine Baker that I couldn't get in. And mm. I think I think I was going to try to move a couple of pieces aside to get her in uh, in there because she was she was a French. Um, you know, of course, France was was an ally in, in World War Two, but she had become uh, Josephine Baker had become <clears throat> in, uh, in uh, you know a, a highly uh, uh, acclaimed. Um, um, entertainer in 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 Europe, especially in, in France, she became a spy for the French government uh, in World War Two. Uh, she would listen in. Uh, she would perform for German officers or whatever and listen to their their conversations because she she spoke uh, and and understood German. Uh, but they didn't, of course they didn't know that, and uh, she would pass on secrets to the to the French and and, and allies. And after World War. Two was over. She 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 also got a Croix de Jour, the top honor, uh, military honor, um, from the French government, <clears throat> and she wasn't recognized, of course, by, by the United States uh, for for anything that uh, that she did in World War Two. But she was highly decorated, uh, as I said, as a spy, uh, and so I needed to, I wanted to include her, but like I said, I had so much so much stuff, and I decided to put her aside, but. I think I'll put her back up uh, again, uh, yeah. yeah, along with her bio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any 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 other um, pieces that you really wanted to have in there, but, you know, you just didn't have enough space, and are you planning on maybe having another iteration of this exhibition? 
Well, well, yes. Well, I would, I would love to have every, all of my, all of my uh, uh, World War One memorabilia in the exhibition, but just, just wasn't enough space. I mean, I mean, I have, I have at least uh, forty, forty more posters and and uh, and, and photographs that I couldn't, didn't make it uh, into the, in the exhibition, but. But in any case, I, I'm thinking uh, uh, it's an ongoing collection, and I'm always getting invitations to uh, to uh, um, to display them. Uh, hopefully, I can try. To, I'm, I, want, I would like to to, to more more uh, to have more exposure to the black community, especially youth, especially schools and uh, uh, colleges and what have you. I just started uh, exhibiting maybe two years ago, and. Uh, I just haven't had the uh, the opportunity now uh, to to really uh, do my legwork as far as recruiting myself and the, I mean not myself but the exhibit uh, to uh, uh, you know uh, educational um, institutions and whatever. But that's where some of my main focus is on youth from kindergarten through through college, knowing our history, not just black necessarily African American, even though we need it more than anybody, but everybody should know our history. African Americans contributions uh to the world and uh, to the United States and to the world. And that includes um African Americans uh, in the military's contributions as well. Right. Hello? Yeah and, and talk of yes and talk a little bit about, about your own um you know, military service. You were in the Navy and uh, for three years, right? Um, you were in the in the Vietnam War, and you traveled to various um, various countries and saw a lot of combat. Um, but I, I don't think, um, well, you were drafted because that was when we had a draft, so you didn't necessarily volunteer. Um, I guess you could have decided not to serve and went to prison, like some people did. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. And so talk about that and and and. And your whole idea of you know you collect these these um these these this these items that are so indicative of a history that a lot of people don't know about and 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 you know and then with your your kente um you know uh collection uh it sort of opens it up to you know the African diaspora and particularly you know looking at Ghana you know, the first nation um, to get its independence um, after, you know, colonial rule. So I was wondering if you could sort of maybe talk a little bit about your own experience in the military and then maybe, you know, um, connect it up again with the whole idea of of having these artifacts, you know, having this evidence of our presence in these real historic moments that are important to um, well, national identity. Well, yeah, I, well, I, I joined the Navy uh, during the the, uh, the Vietnam crisis, I was going to be drafted anyway, so I decided, well, I'm going, I would go to the Navy, and uh, mm-hmm. because that's why I preferred, you know, I wanted to travel the world and all that. So, but in, in any case, uh, uh, I was promised also, I was promised to go, you know, electronic school because my my, my scores were so high, and whatever, uh, by the by the, uh, the recruiter. But as it turned out, I ended up uh, on the destroyer. <laughs> on my way to Vietnam after I got out of uh, out of boot camp, uh, racism was rampant uh, in in the armed forces uh, when I was there. Uh, promotional opportunities were 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 very slim for for uh, for African Americans in the Navy at the time. Um, 
I, I decided from the beginning that I was not going to make a career out of it. But, um, you know, as a matter of fact, for an example, I, won't, I saw I saw three African-American uh, officers, uh, naval officers, when I was in the Navy. And each time we were, me and my buddies were always really shocked to see these guys, you know, these these. These uh these these uh these officers, uh black officers, but my uh, my experiences in the Navy regarding uh, say for instance when we when Martin Luther King was assassinated at the time we were on our way to Vietnam, there were race riots on uh, most of the uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the bases the naval bases and also. Uh, the larger ships, like the, the I think the Midway. I'm not sure if the Midway had a race riot, but uh, the Enterprise. I, I remember having race riots, but that was never reported back back in the states. But we knew things were going on like that uh, since we were inside, you know, inside. So, but in any case, um, uh, that was part of my reasoning for starting this uh, this collection too. I was saying that my grandfather's uh, experience. And you know the uh, the, the uh, photograph that I that I bought uh, you know way back when uh, was part of the the start of it. But my experiences as well as uh, uh, seeing from the inside the discrimination that African Americans and disrespect that we that we were uh, uh, treated with uh, was definitely a part of the reason that I started collecting this, uh, making this collection uh, a priority in my life. Um, yeah, so that's basically uh, how how that how that worked out. Yes. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you um you know when you were released um, from active duty um, after serving from 1967 through 1969, you returned to Louisville um, and attended the University of Louisville before living le- living in New York and Philadelphia, and then. Um, uh, you moved to San Francisco Bay Area and you worked for the federal government for 30 years. I think when I met you, you were still working for the federal government, but getting ready to retire. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and you um, you earned an Associate's of Arts degree in African American Studies and Social Science and Liberal Arts from Laney College in Berkeley City, uh, then Vista College, and a Bachelor's of Public Administration and Master's in Public Administration degrees from the University of San Francisco. And... Um, so your collection um, of African-American art extends to books, music, uh, and memorabilia from the 1970s. And you had a dream of opening an art and cultural center and museum. And so where's, where is that part of your dream? Uh, like, are you still looking for a space? Well, well yes, absolutely. Yeah, You know, life happens, you know. It's, it, um, I, had, I had planned to, uh, all these years, the reason I was, I was doing most all this collecting was mainly to, to open that, that uh, culture center, the museum, mm-hmm. um, here in, in, you know, in the Bay Area. But at right. this point, it's anywhere that, that I can, uh, you know, can do this, it's going to be uh, a valuable uh, wherever that place is. You know, thinking about moving back to maybe Cincinnati, Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky mm-hmm. area, where it's much uh, economically feasible to do this. Uh, I can't mm-hmm. afford now, I waited a little bit too late to afford to uh, to, to be able to uh, open uh, a place here or to buy a place and open it up up here in the Bay Area uh, because the prices of properties have gone so, so far up. But the fact of the matter is that eventually 
I, I plan to do that. But if not, I'm still doing something for the community by, you know, with this particular collection that I have now um, mm-hmm. uh, that I'm displaying now at the um, uh, the uh, Devoir Memorial uh, building in San right, Francisco. Right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this particular gallery is, is um, uh, there's a veterans gallery that it's specific to, um, you know, this, this kind of, of work. Uh, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, the kind of uh, collection that you have isn't often the collection, you know, the type of uh, exhibits that happen. So that's really great that, um, you know, you are able to, to share this work you know, with with a, a you know a larger and more varied audience, you know, by having it in this particular location. It's too bad it's not up a little bit longer, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, they, they, yes, it, it, you're right. This is the, actually, from what I understand, this is the first time that any kind of black-oriented uh, um, uh, African American um, uh, exhibit has ever been there at that particular hmm. gallery. Uh, this was wow. the first one, and uh, as it when they when they uh, when they uh, asked me to do this, they told me that Black History Month, half of Black History Month, had, uh, had already been booked maybe a year ago oh. to do another exhibit. So this is why I said, well, you know, what I'll I'll just take what what I can get, and you know, to have this this opportunity to display this in uh, you know for, to a very audience audience uh, of people. So um, this is why I, I, you know, it's it, it started like maybe a day after Martin Luther King's birthday, you know, mm-hmm. and then went into uh, <clears throat> actually a day after the day after Martin Luther King's birthday, it went into African American, uh, I'm sorry, Black History Month. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad to at least have that, you know, that 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 part of Black History Month to display this. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, somebody will hear this. this mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Uh, uh, hopefully, someone will hear this podcast and uh, invite me to uh, invite us to to do this uh, this this uh, important exhibit at their their venue wherever that is. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. Because the African American um, Shakespeare Company, um, their next piece is called Black Eagles, and it opens on March 16th through 31st at the Marines Memorial Theater. And who knows? You know, maybe they have a gallery, and that would be really super. You know, to have you know some of your um your uh you know collection you know as a part of of that um that you know theatrical um performance um in in that particular venue you know the Marines Memorial Theater um which has you know um different types of um you know artifacts and things like that looking at you know um the military That'd be so um that would that would totally be perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, so in closing, um, I just wanted to ask you who's going to be on your panel if you already have that already, you know, finished. You know, you can share that with us, and um, and then also, um, uh, so you know, what else have you collected, and what are you looking to collect? Maybe people might have it, and they might be able to offer it to you. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. Say that again, please. Uh, if you could tell us who's going to be on your panel, and and then secondly um, and lastly, um, what uh, what do you have in your collection? I know you have the Kente cloth. I know you have this um, this uh, war um, memorabilia for a very you know a lot of the different uh, combats 
you know, that people of African descent found themselves in. And and then I was wondering, what are you collecting now? What are you looking to collect? Just in case people who are listening might have these kind of items in their, you know, possession and they could make them available to you. Well, any any well, 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 anything and everything that has to do with 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 African Americans in the military uh, from the, uh, the Revolutionary War through World War II, but at this particular time, particular things that have to do with with, with women that served, um, mm. you know, if wax, uh, the first wax waves in World War II. Uh, I, I really would like some I mean, photographs. Uh, uh, discharge papers, draft, you know, uh, not draft. I mean, uh, uh, any any type of anything that has to do with 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 black women who served, uh, and, and also in World World War One, in World War One, uh, anything that they have of, of nurses uh, or hostesses that served during World War One. Yeah, I'm looking for those things. So um, they can always they can call me at uh, let's see let's see they, my uh, email address is Clark Bertram Clark Bertram C L A R K B E R T R A M seventy seven at gmail dot com and they can also always uh, do that. And one other thing, for more information on this exhibit. They can visit uh, alwmc.org forward slash gallery forward slash 2019 Black History. So it's uh, alwmc.org forward slash gallery. Mhm. Yeah, that's a really nice um, nice link, and uh, yeah, you can see pictures with. Um, uh, there's also some live links within that, <laughs> and you can look at the letters up close. You can make them bigger, and uh, yeah, the um, the whole thing when you were telling me about the Revolutionary War and the Black Loyalists, that was really interesting because a lot of people don't know about about that particular history. Um, yeah, so oh yeah, well that, there, yeah, there, mm-hmm. there is a, there's also we have an article uh, on. Uh, the uh, 1812 African Americans served, like I said before, also in bar, the War of 1812. It's like the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812. Very few people mm-hmm. know about that. It's not, it's not taught. In, matter of fact, none of this is taught in, in schools, in regular schools. But the Americans were were black Marines who were uh, who uh, actually were, who were who were escapes, uh, skate, uh, slaves who joined the British during the War of 1812. And uh, the War of 1812 took place around uh, the Chesapeake Bay, uh, up near the Canadian border, and many uh, uh, escaped slaves uh, would join the uh, the British, and uh, was a promise of being freed uh, and being able to uh, establish their own colonies and what have you after the war. The British kept their word, and one of the colonies that uh, that they, they they gave the uh, the freed blacks that they uh, that 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 uh, fought for them, the Marines, was in uh, Trinidad. Today, what they call Trinidad, and they are uh, to this day have descendants that live in Trinidad, and they're called Americans. M E R K I K K A N S. I don't know if it's because of the 
the vernacular that they they used at the time that they that they became known as being Americans. But these these people still exist. Uh, their generation still exists today in in uh, Trinidad. Uh, so, mm. yes. Wow, that's uh, really interesting, Americans. Um, have you um, have you actually met any of the descendants of of these um, revolutionary um, war um, veterans um, no. that that moved that you know that lived in Trinidad and are called Americans that might still be in Trinidad but have come here? No, no, I haven't. I'm ne- I've never met any personally, but but doing my research, uh, you know, online, uh, go to YouTube. That's a good. That's a good source for just about oh. anything. Yeah, and uh-huh. just just, just uh, type in America, uh, uh, Americans or Americans, M E R I K A N S, and the, all that history just drops, pops up right in right in front of you. You know, yeah. the 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 music, the cultures, and whatever that and the, the honors that the the, the Trinidadian uh, uh, government gives these uh, these Americans, it's all shown there on on YouTube in different uh, different clips. That's pretty amazing. And and what about um what about the uh um the Haitians that, that also um came here to help um the United States uh win the war against I'm trying to think was it I think it was also the British and it was some war in some battle in, in um I'm not certain what I don't know if it was in Georgia or well, well one thing uh, I would say that you know uh, I'm not a historian. I mean, I maybe mean, understand that in the beginning, but I'm not really not a historian. I do know about oh. a lot of the, mm-hmm. you know, the artifacts that are in my, in my, in my, uh, and the articles and, um, and what have you that are in my collection. I have information on it. But that particular thing, I've, I've never heard of that, uh, that group of Haitians that came here to fight for. Uh, the French, because I mean, for the Americans, because uh, Haiti, of course, they was colonized by the French. Maybe it was in the mm-hmm. French, French, French Indian War. I, I don't really know. I, I really the answer your question. I don't know. Sorry. Okay, I'm, I'm going to see if I can pull it up real quick because it was before um, the um, before the um, uh, before Haiti was was liberated. It was still a colony, and um, and so Desalines was one of the folks that came here um to um to fight in this battle um and I guess it was against the British and was, was, was the it in, in, was it in Louisiana maybe No, I will remember that. No, it wasn't in Louisiana and they have a statue there um in in you know where the battle happened. So I have to mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm finding it, sorry um, but I'll have to get back to you on that but um yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot the battle of what I don't remember. Wow! Well, this is really, really awesome. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the exhibit on Saturday, and uh, and so um, besides yourself, who's going to be on the panel? You know, I I won't be on the panel, and the panel's still being formed. There are going to be okay. uh, quite a few. You're not going to be on the panel, really? Oh, who's well, gonna I, I'm going to I'm going to speak. I'm going to give into the. Uh, uh, introductory uh, statements and and what have you, based on some of the things that we're, we've talked about today. But we have a, very, uh, a, a, a panel of historians. These are people who are mm-hmm. college professors and that uh, who are going to be on the panel. One is James Armstead, uh, who is a former, um, a retired naval naval college um, uh, professor. Uh, uh, the, 
So and uh, he's he's formulating this this uh, this committee as we're speaking. Uh, they're going to be four on the panel of uh, people who are, are are experts in World War uh, African Americans in the military, uh, from World War One, World War Two, and Buffalo Soldiers. Um, he hasn't sent me the, the names of the, the exact names of each one of these these folks as as yet. I'm still. I guess he'll be sending them sometime today. But he's formulated the uh, the committee. It's going to be a very stimulating panel discussion with historians. You know, people who know this. I'm. A, I, I know something of it, like I said earlier about my collection. But these these are these people can really give us a lot of knowledge. And it's going to be an open uh, question and answer period right after the uh, this discussion. And I don't know how they're going to conduct it. Maybe they'll have it during the discussion while they're speaking. You can ask questions. But um, it's it's going to be really great. It's going to be something. Oh, yes. that, that, and please mm-hmm. bring the children. Please bring your, your children if, um, to this. Uh, it doesn't matter whether from kindergarten, you know, to, to college age, uh, the youth need to know know this this uh, this history. And uh, my collection is a visual history, so you know it it, it pulls you in uh, with the with the, uh, the the posters and the, the photographs. It just it, they basically tell their own story. But I also have descriptions and captions for each one of the the photographs and and uh, and that. So it's 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 a wonderful historical uh, journey of African Americans in the military uh, that everybody should see. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, certainly, certainly. Yeah, and we're really happy, you know, that um, you know, that you've been, you know, collecting all this great great work um and telling this story that far too few know and and you know, we think about Veterans Day um you know, the the shallowness of 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 the Veterans Day, you know, here. I don't know about the rest of the country, but there should be exhibits like this going up. You know, during that period, um, you know, um, in, you know, toward of, you know, late late May, so that people can really know who, you know, um, gave their lives for this nation. You know, going back to the beginning, before it was a nation, when it was still a colony. Absolutely, and you know, there there are <clears throat> there are some some veterans uh, organizations around the country who who to have. Uh, these 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 types of exhibits for Africans, African veterans, focused based mainly on African Americans in the military, but um, there are very few, very few, very few that that that, that highlight African Americans in the military. But there 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 are many that do for the general, you know, Afri- uh, the general ve- veterans uh, uh, population, uh, but. Um, there's always the the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington D.C. I encourage everyone to mm-hmm. visit that. Uh, it has a wealth of, of of displays and exhibits on African Americans in the military. I forgot which mm-hmm. floors are, but you can find it when you get there. Uh, uh, look up, look it up, uh, look look it up online. Uh, but that is a. I've been there. Have you have you been there? Uh, Wanda, yes, it, yes, I went there. It's it's enormous. It's like it goes on and on and on, yes, and they're like all these films, and I'm like, wow. I mean, you really like, yeah. It's it's amazing. You're, you're so so you're so right. Um, they did a really great job on that particular aspect of of um, our history and culture. It's 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 massive. Like you you could just do that. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> there's so much to just comprehend. And, like, a, you know, it's just like, yeah, you, you're reading things, you know, you're looking at the, you know, the, the you know, the artifacts, you're watching the films, you know, you're doing interactive stuff. It's like, oh, my gosh. It's like, well, you can't and, do it all in it one goes, day. Not, well, yeah, you know, some people have to. But, yeah, you definitely know, like, i got to go back. <laughs> yes, and that, that's what's happened to me. I've been back three times, but I, have, I haven't gotten a chance, still haven't gotten a chance to go uh, at the beginning when you go down, you know, underground into the slave oh, ship area yeah. That because mm-hmm. there's always so many people, you know, it's always crowded, uh, so many lines. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I never get there uh, early enough to, to do that. Uh, I mean, I could stand in line, I guess, all day, but uh, but anyway, I'll go back. I will. I'll be, and I, I and getting back to the the African American military uh, displays. There are just so many of them, um, dating, like you said, from from uh, the Revolutionary War to today. So um, anyway, that's that's one place that I recommend. But also recommend coming to see my exhibit here locally because this is really and follow follow me. Uh, uh, as much as you can, uh, and anybody out there that, that needs to to have this exhibit in their their school or their their church or or community uh, any community activity, I'm 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 here for you. Um, and uh, I you know I'm one I'm basically a one man show, but I'm looking for partners for somebody to help me out. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Right, um, right, yeah. Well, thank you again, and congratulations on on what looks like a really marvelous exhibition. And uh, yeah, it's up for another week after this week, right? Yeah, it will be up until the uh, the seventeenth. Um, right. Yes, and uh, yes, we start taking it down down on the uh, the eighteenth. But yes, it'll be mm-hmm. up until then. And um, hopefully, after that, I can get someone that we can uh, get, go for the rest of the uh, Back History Month in another venue. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I really hope I'm going to introduce you to um, you know, the artistic director and director of the African American Shakespeare Company cuz like I mentioned, they're going to be at the Marines Memorial um uh um theater um in in their, you know, the, that's a big place. <laughs> so yeah. Maybe there might be a, a space within that particular um uh, venue, that hotel venue um you know, for you know, for if not all of your um, your collection, you know, something that's pertinent to, you know, the um, the Black Eagles, you know, the uh, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, which is what the play is going to be about. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that that'd be that'd be marvelous. I would I would love to do yeah. that. Yeah. So I'll yeah, connect I'm, you all. I'm ready right to now. do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> all righty, cool, super. Yeah, well, let's hope that happens. Um, but anyway, um, they should definitely know about you and your wonderful collection and your work. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope, um, you know, this is just the first of many conversations to come. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for helping me here. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. You take good care. See you this weekend. All right. See you this weekend, Wanda. Okay. Bye. Some blessings. Bye bye. So we're going to close out with Angela Wellman back on track.
that was um, Angela Wellman back on track. And the reference that I was mentioning to um, Mr. Clark, uh, it was the uh, the siege of Savannah or the Second Battle of Savannah, which was um, uh, in um, seventeen. Um, Seventy-nine. Um, the battle, I guess, was um, well. Yeah, the seventeen seventy-nine, and there were more than five hundred recruits from uh, Saint uh, Domingue, uh, the French colony, which later became um, Haiti. And and so, in that particular battle, um, which um, uh, which with the French help uh, and these African enslaved African people. Um, uh, they won, and there's a statue there actually. Um, the first general of the Haitian Revolution and uh, the first general um, to leave Haiti uh, in its independence, um, uh, um, Dessalines, um, he was uh, one of the recruits in um, this battle. So anyway, that's that's the battle that I was trying to remember that I couldn't figure out. So anyway, yeah, yeah. So uh, the siege of Savannah in Savannah, Georgia, um, in the Revolutionary War, which was 1775 to 1783, and this was in 1779. So thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks, and uh, you can tune in on Friday morning, same time, 8 o'clock. In the 8 o'clock a.m. Pacific time for another edition. And uh, yeah, yeah. Have a good, good day. Um, thinking revolutionary thoughts and uh, continuing to um, be free. <laughs>